Hello and welcome to the Reading Ramble. On this episode, we continue to meet the authors taking part in the exciting Lancashire Stories project. This time, it's the turn of Lancashire lass Libby Ashworth. Born and bred in Lancashire, Libby has earned a reputation as a fantastic author telling historical tales of Lancashire's past. Her newest novel, The Convict's Wife, tells the tale of Molly Holden, whose husband is convicted of being a Luddite and sentenced to be transported to Australia. You can borrow a copy now from your Lancashire library. Libby joins us today to talk about her writing, to explore the influence of Lancashire on her work, and to give us a tease of what her Lancashire story will be about. So I'm here today with Libby Ashworth, um, who is one of the authors that's been selected to take part in the Lancashire Stories project. Uh, Hi Libby, how are you? Hi, I'm fine, thanks. Thank you for having me. It's really good to to speak to you. Um, I thought we'd start by asking a little bit about you and your writing background. Um, Do you want to sort of tell us a bit about what your sort of normal writing output is and um, how you started um, being a writer? Yeah, I can't remember a time when I wasn't a writer, to be honest. I've been doing it since since I was a child. And I think I even used to make up stories in my head before I could even write them down. And I thought everybody did that. I didn't know that it was unusual. Um, Yeah, I used to write things when I was at school. I used to write little plays and hand out the parts for uh, for my friends. I'm sure they must have been really fed up with me at times. Um, I got my first work published, I think I was about 11 or 12 years old. And I was absolutely pony mad at the time. And I wrote um, a little article about the Spanish riding school at Vienna and sent it up to a magazine that I used to get called Diana. And they wrote back and said, oh, yes, we'll publish this. And I got a pound postal order for it. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is this is easy money. You know, I'm onto something good here. So I carried on. Um, and I used to write short stories back then. And they were all about ponies. And I wrote um, this story about a pony and sent it to Pony Annual. And they sent me um, a letter back saying, oh, yes, it was very nice. Thank you. We'll keep it on file. And my mother said, you know, that's just a nice way of them telling you to to go away. And I thought, well, no. And then um, just after Christmas, uh, the same year, I got a letter through the post with a cheque for £15. This is payment for your story in the Pony Annual. Well, I was absolutely thrilled to bits. But the problem was that I'd made the beginner's mistake of send of writing it, because I used to do it by hand at that time, wrote it down, sent it off, didn't keep a copy. So rushed down to the shops to try to get hold of a copy of this pony annual and of course before because it was after christmas they'd all sold out couldn't get one anywhere my sister-in-law was a teacher and one of her pupils had a copy and she lent it to me so that i could have a look at the story in print but i never ever managed to find a copy of pony annual until about five years ago I used to go looking around bookshops for it, 
but then of course with the with the internet and online bookshops and the ability to search for things made it so much easier and I managed to track down a copy so now after all these years I actually have a copy of Pony Annual with my first published short story in it, which is absolutely brilliant. I think it's probably my most treasured possession. <laughs> Perhaps the thing that I would grab first, you know, if there was a fire, I mustn't lose that now that it's taken me so long to get hold of it. So, yeah, I mean, after that, I, I just went on um, writing things, writing short stories, writing novels, writing bad poetry. I must have written millions of words over the years. Um, I used to do short stories for the for the women's magazines, um, various other things as well, um, articles for magazines like The Lady. Um, I used to do some work for Lancashire magazine at one time. Of course, I wasn't making a living out of this. Um, very, very few writers actually make a living out of the work that they do, unfortunately. Uh, so I was teaching and I had to fit it in with, with the teaching. And I always thought that I didn't want to commit to writing a novel because I really didn't have the time to, to do it. So I did short stories and things. And it's not until such a more recently, um, perhaps last 10 or 15 years, that I turned, um, turned my hand to actually getting stuck into a novel. I'd always thought that novel writing was going to be so much more difficult than writing a short story. But thinking about it now, I think in actual fact that probably writing a short story is more difficult because it's, you have to be so concise. You have to get all your ideas into, into a set number of words. Every word has to really count. Whereas with a novel, well, I mean, you can't sort of go on and on, but you've got a bit more space to um, think about your characters and explore your characters and explore your plots and have minor characters and their subplots. And although it's a lot of words, I, I quite enjoy having that bit more space to, to, to work and get my ideas down. Um, interesting that point about how the short story as a medium um sort of yeah you really do have to be quite uh restrictive with what you say and yet we spoke to one of the other authors in the previous episode and talked about how you've got to let your audience infer things whereas in a novel you can be a little bit more nose can't you yeah that that's true you you've sort of got to make every word work for you in a short story and yeah and i think a lot of it you do sometimes have to leave things unsaid and let the and let the reader um you know no make it up for themselves because you haven't got room to to explain everything but i always think that there's no need for writers to to explain everything um i write it and then someone comes along and reads it and they bring their own ideas and their own experiences then to that story and everybody brings different experiences. So for every reader, that short story or novel is going to mean something slightly different. And sometimes, you you know, you leave things a bit open and you think, well, yeah, let the reader do a little bit of work of their own to, to fill in the gaps or make their minds up about characters. Because when you get feedback about characters, you get varied feedback. 
um, I've noticed this, especially in, in the latest novel that I've done um, that's just out called The Convict's Wife. And the character in that, who is actually the convict, Thomas Holden, um, I've had sort of mixed feedback about him, which to me was quite surprising because I felt really, really sorry for him. I was sympathetic. I thought that he'd been very badly treated and I could understand um, that he was sort of upset about what had happened to him. And I've had one or two um, reviews from girls who sort of said, oh, I didn't like Thomas. Um, I thought he should have manned up. <laughs> and I thought, oh, poor lad, you know, come on, give him a break. <laughs> he was he was put on a ship to Australia, you know, not knowing what was going to happen to him. You know, so, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting to get to, to get feedback on, on different characters from your readers. I think it's uh, only fair that a creation that you've that you've put, you know, you've brought into the world that you'd have some level of protectiveness over them. Uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. He was a real person as well. And I think that probably made me feel even a bit more protective of him. And I based the story on um, letters that he actually wrote home to his wife. So Thomas's story wasn't just an invented story. It was sort of the real story of a, of a real person. And he was only about 20, 21 when this happened to him. So he was, you know, very young. And yeah, I, I think I do feel enormously protective of him. So, you know, I was surprised and I sort of wanted to say to them, well, no, but, 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 you know, poor Thomas. But of course, you've just got to take the feedback and, and roll with it. You, you know, you don't go, um, you don't go arguing with, the, with your book reviewers. It's not good luck. Um, so, I mean, a little bit later, we'll talk about the, um, the idea behind your story that you're writing for Lancashire Stories, but um, similarly to the, the, the convict's wife, um, it's got a basis in reality, in fact. Yes. Is that something that you like to bring into your writing then? That you, Anita, does that bring with it a research process or? Yeah, I find I find most of the things that I write do have some basis um, in, in history and particularly in, in Lancashire history. The, the first novel I did was called The De Lacey Inheritance. That came out, I think, about, um, about 2010, it must be about 10, 11 years ago now. That came about as, a, as an offshoot from a book that I've been asked to write for countryside books called Tales of Old Lancashire. They used to do a series, Tales of Old, you know, whatever county it was. So I did this Tales of Old Lancashire. One of the stories I came across was the one about um, a hermit who used to live underneath Clitheroe Castle. And it was said that he was a member of the De Lacey family, but he'd been in the wars out in the Middle East and he'd got um, leprosy. And of course, if you had leprosy at that time, you were cut off from society. And so he wasn't able to inherit all the wealth that he should have inherited. There's a little bit of truth in this story. Um, the, the myth is very embroidered, but there's a nugget of truth in it. And I was so intrigued by this idea that I thought, you know, I think I could write a novel about this. 
and so yeah i gave it a go and that was um that came to be the the de Lacy inheritance but i do like to to have a little bit of of, of truth sort of start me off as a as a starting point i love research and i've got to be careful that i don't sort of get too bogged down by the research that nothing nothing ever gets written but research i find is a really good way of, of sparking ideas it is for me anyway i'll read something and i think oh that's interesting i think that would make a good story when i first had the ideas for um the milltown lasses series um it came from doing family research i've been looking back at my own family history and I could see that going back through my father's generations, um, people were living out at Worley in the in the 1600s, and they were handling weavers in little cottages out there. Then, as the generations passed, they sort of moved from Worley to to Billington to Lango, and then ended up in Blackburn. And on the censuses, they were still weavers and spinners but now they were working in the mills in Blackburn rather than working in their own cottages out at Worley and I thought gosh it must have been so hard for them to to make that change it's like the opposite of what's happened during the pandemic when people have gone from working in offices to suddenly finding themselves working at home in the back bedroom or the dining room Theirs was the opposite. They went from having their handling weavers in their cellars to having to work in some great enormous noisy mill with hundreds and hundreds of, of other people. And so it sparked the idea of the difficulties that, um, you know, that families may have faced having to having to deal with the with the Industrial Revolution and a whole lifestyle change for them. You mentioned that you, you enjoy the research process. Um... What does it look like to you? Does it involve going to, to museums, archives? Is it a lot online? Um, how do you go about researching these um, events and uh, historical Well, sites? a lot of it's online. The, the, the internet has been a huge revelation to me. Um, I mean, years ago when I did research, it was in the reference library, uh, you know, down, down in town in Blackburn, and you had to put your coat on and get on the bus and get there. I mean, now you can just sit in your pajamas and browse and browse through sites, which is, well, I don't know whether it's a good thing or not, really. I mean, talking about hermits, uh, I, you know, I think I'm in danger of becoming a bit of a hermit myself sometimes. But yeah, I do like to go out and I do like to I do like to see things. I, I like to visit museums. I like to visit old houses. Um, my son will tell you the hours I've made him tramp around graveyards with me looking at headstones has <laughs> been unbelievable. So it's it's a mixture of things. And I like bookshops and I like old books. So, yeah, I, I think it's always a mixture, a mixture of things. <laughs> Um, and so what does the actual writing process look like to you? How how do you go about uh, putting pen to paper? Have you got routines or as and when? I like to think first. Um, I think this goes back to what I was saying about being a child and making up the stories in my head. I, I think I have to think first. Um, and then it sort of gets to scribbling a few notes down on a piece of paper trying to sort of plan out some vague idea of what I'm going to write. I think the process may be different for short stories than it is for a novel. 
I think for the short story, I probably have more an idea of what the plot is going to be. I have a beginning, I have an end, and I have a pretty good idea of what's going to come in the middle. At which point, when I've got some scribbled notes on paper, I'll then sit down and, and begin to type. I'd rather do it on the keyboard than by hand. Um, I learned to touch type when I was at school, which was an absolute, probably one of the best things I've ever done, because it means that I can actually type as fast as I'm thinking. Whereas if I try to write by hand, my hand won't keep up with my mind, so I find that harder. For a novel, it's it's a little bit, well, I don't think I'm going to say more difficult, but it's, it's different. Um, I think because there's more space between that beginning and the end, and I do have that vague idea of what's going to happen in the middle, but it will change significantly as I begin to write, because I find that the ideas come to me as I'm writing. I know writers who are absolute planners and they'll do everything. They have it all on post-it notes, um, every scene written on a post-it note, pinned up on the board, over the desk. They know exactly what they're going to write before they begin. But no, I have to write before I really know what the story is going to be. When um, you were first getting into writing and uh, sort of, you know, you you talked about the the early stories being um, often about ponies. Yeah. <laughs> what were your influences? What were the the authors that you liked to to read? And then when you were developing into a novelist, did they, I presumably they were different influences. Yeah. When I was pony mad, it was ridiculous. I wouldn't read a book if it didn't have a horse in it. I used to go to the library and go through all the shelves and just look for ones that were about horses. And if it didn't have a horse in it. I wouldn't I wouldn't read it. I mean, I used to read Westerns and all sorts of ridiculous things just because they had horses in them. Well, you know, thankfully, I did manage to grow out of that. I think sometime, sometime in my teens. I mean, I still love horses. Don't don't. Uh, but it's a long time since I was on one. And I don't think that I would ride one again now. Um, yeah, I think probably one of the, one of the best things that I ever read was Mr. Over Pendle by Robert Neal. And I suddenly realised that people actually wrote books that were set in Lancashire and not down south or in some other exotic place. And I absolutely loved that book. And because it was about history as well, and I think I've always been interested in the history. And I think, yeah, that influenced me. And then um, I read things like South Riding by Winifred Holtby. Um, Elizabeth Gaskell's books, Probably North and South has been a tremendous influence on my on my Milltown series, um, you know, because a lot of the things that she wrote about and because hers was almost contemporary, it was a good resource as well as a good as a good story, you know, for, for fact checking um, and the politics of the time. Because I do like to, to even though they're sort of marketed as sagas and women's books. I do like to think that they're, they're for everybody to read. And I do try to sneak as much politics in there as I think that I can get away with, especially, you know, with the with, with the Milltown aspect, because the, the politics of the time is absolutely fascinating as the working people were, were fighting to have some rights and some say over, over their own lives, um, you know, fighting for working conditions, fighting to have the vote 
fighting to be heard rather than just being used by the by the mill workers that's that's really interesting we um we did a series of or we we sort of co um co commissioned a, a series of podcasts on the uh, author Ethel Carney who yes. from Ozzel Twistle and, yeah uh, and one of the things that um the the people that did the that made the podcast um talked about was how she uh wrote these stories that were seemingly like love stories um about the mills in Lancashire but actually she was uh you know quite political and radical uh, in her in her views for that time and she was in, in sort of slipping in sort of the political chat to sort of sort of just sort of get it into people's minds through the, through through the medium of uh, yeah a love story so it's quite interesting to hear that yeah 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 it's probably probably a similar idea yeah I've probably taken that on board at some point in in my mind without even realizing it I mean you I read widely and read so many people so when you say what influences you I think sometimes you don't really know what's what's influenced you and 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 things have and maybe it's not until later when you go back and reread something and you think yeah do you know I think that must have influenced me because I can see the, the similarities of the ideas there yeah I guess you wouldn't you know read for a sort of finite period of your life between 18 and 25 and those are your influences you continue to take them on don't you if you read something now it's still will have an influence in, the, in perhaps your next novel. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which is why I try not to read things that are too similar to what I'm writing. Because I don't want to be influenced by people who are writing in the same genre, because I don't want to pick up on, on their ideas subconsciously and find that I'm putting them into my own work. I, I want mine sort of to be, well, as original as it can be. It obviously comes through listening to your talk um, about what an influence Lancashire is on your writing and um, the, the yeah the work that you produce. Can you tell us a little bit about why you think Lancashire makes such a a, a great um, setting for literature? It, uh, yeah, is it is it the is it the scenery or is it the people or is it a mixture of everything? I think it's probably a mixture of everything and and I think it's because it's sort of it, it's in my blood because like I was saying you know I can trace my family back to Worley back to the 1600s and it's like being at most almost an organic part of the place when there are so many people before you who you've who you've descended from who've lived here and, and, and worked here and I mean, people have said to me, would you move away? And no, I don't think I ever would. I think I would miss it too much. I mean, I love to go and see other parts of the country and there's lots of beautiful places, but but this is home and, and I couldn't ever move away from here. And yeah, I mean, it's the people, it's the history, it's the scenery. I mean, to me, I'll, I'll say to people, you know, they'll say, oh, Lancashire, and they sort of pull that face, you know, when they're thinking about mill chimneys and that. And I'll say, no, come and see it. I'll say, do you not know, Lancashire actually is one of the most rural counties in the country. Now that, you know, sort of Manchester and Liverpool have been taken out of it, though they haven't really been taken out of it because they are still 
Lancashire. Um, the campaign for, for real Lancashire is very, very keen that those places should still be regarded as part of Lancashire. I would still regard them as, as part of Lancashire as well. But yeah, but there is beautiful scenery and, and, and history. I, I think it's the history of the place that fascinates me more than anything. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I think it's probably time to just give a bit of a mention then to um, the story that you're writing for Lancashire Stories. Do you want to give us a, a bit of a, a synopsis without giving too much? Without giving too much away. Well, I suppose that people who are listening will probably have guessed by now that it's going to be a historical story and that it's going to be based on an element of the truth. And it's going to be set during the Lancashire Cotton Famine. And I think most people have heard of the Lancashire Cotton Famine, where um, there was no cotton coming into the country. Therefore, they, there was no work for the workers in Blackburn. And all the work was based on cotton. Um, there was no welfare state at that time. So basically, if you didn't work, you didn't eat. Um, there were charities, um, obviously, who tried to, to give money to people and, and to help people, but a lot of people went very, very hungry and, and suffered during, during those few years. But I think one of the things that people maybe don't appreciate um, about the cotton famine is its links with the American Civil War and and particularly the the fight against slavery and i think there's huge parallels um ab about slavery and about workers and and the way that they were treated and i tried to talk a little bit about that in the short story focusing on one on one blackburn family and um and how they got through the, the worst of the famine i think it's a fantastic a fascinating part of Lancashire history and you know again without going into too much the role that Abraham Lincoln you know played in uh, in sending food parcels that he sent over. Yes yeah. That was something that I didn't know about and you know, that's quite a, quite a big deal really isn't it? it? It was a huge deal um, in actual fact yeah and yeah and I think it is part of history that people may not know that much about um, it's why there's a statue of Abraham Lincoln in the middle of Manchester and people may just pass it by and not really realise why why it's there. Yeah, well, I, I can't wait to read it. I think it's going to be a really interesting story and I think it'll I think it'll cause some discussion as well. I think and that's really important. I think it's it's really vital that we do highlight these parts of our history that people are, are aware of uh, of uh, of the history of Lancashire um, and uh, yeah, I think I can't wait to read your story. Yeah, well, I'm hoping it'll, I'm hoping that people will, I hope, first of all, I hope people will be entertained by it. Secondly, I hope that they might learn something from it that they didn't know. And yes, I, I hope that it will stimulate some, some discussion because I think that a good story does leave people with something to think about. And I hope that it will leave people with something, something to think about. You've been listening to The Reading Ramble. Thank you for joining us for this episode and thank you to Libby Ashworth for talking to us about her Lancashire story. We'll speak to you soon.